0: Dr. John Demartini is a human behavioural specialist and founder of the Demartini Institute, a private research and education institute dedicated to activating leadership and human potential. He's an international author and business consultant, working with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, celebrities and sports personalities. Globally, he's worked with individuals and groups across all markets, including entrepreneurs, financiers, psychologists, teachers and young adults assisting and guiding them to greater levels of achievement fulfillment and empowerment in all areas of their lives for more information about Dr. John Demartini his live events and range of products contact the Demartini Institute on info at drdemartini.com to view our website visit www.drdemartini.com in this 12-CD audio program, Secrets to Financial Success, Dr. John Martini will reveal inspiring insights on how to master the inner mindset of wise investing and wealth building. He will provide effective and efficient strategies for creating money making opportunities, outline a step by step pathway for amassing a great fortune, and debunk immediate gratifying financial speculations, fantasies, distractions, and schemes. This program will awaken your most purposeful inner drive to achieve the financial dreams and objectives you feel you deserve.
1: Must take a minute. There it is. Okay, good. Now can you hear me? All right. Just out of curiosity, how many have never heard me before, so I have an idea? And the rest of you have heard me in some form or fashion? Okay, great. And uh, how many are actually from Brisbane? And Perth? And Melbourne? And Sydney? Okay, we'll save a little bit, and, and the other towns, the other <laughs> cities. All right, great. It's a nice variety so we have a good representation of it. Uh, How many would love to be able to have more wealth in their life? Okay, we have that in common. Anybody here that's not interested in doing that? (laughs) No, of course not. Nobody gets up in the morning and they, nobody gets up and says, uh, God, I wish I could have less, do they? No, how many would get up in the morning and say, yes, I'd love to be able to have more wealth in my life? Most of you, right? How many of you actually uh, made some money along the journey and found that some of that money disappeared? How many of you had made a lot of money and some of that money disappeared? Uh, I've been blessed to meet people who have made large sums of money, had millions of dollars passed through their hands, but to this day still have little to show for it. How many of you expected to have a lot more to show for it by this time? All right. We're going to explore financial mastery. We're going to explore how to build wealth. We're going to explore how to get beyond ourselves because building wealth has a lot to do with your own self. Because I can teach you strategies, but it's getting beyond yourself to follow the strategies that's the most important component. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on transforming our perceptions of ourselves and our relationship with money here in the beginning. Uh, a little bit about myself. I have been involved in personal development for 33 years almost. And I have been involved in wealth development uh, really full on for about the last decade, Prior to that, I was doing things on my own to try to develop my own wealth, but it just kept growing, and I didn't know what to do with my wealth, and so I started to figure out, hey, I need to learn about this, and I also uh, started mentoring under other people and started to push myself to learn as much as I could about it because I wanted to be able to manage my own wealth. Well, it just so happens, as I was learning things, other people started seeing what I was doing with wealth, and they started asking me questions, and it just kept growing until Now. Uh, It's not the only program I do, but this is one of the programs that I do, and it's primarily about the psychology of wealth building. I'm going to give you strategies, but I'm going to also talk about the psychology of it, because I'm convinced that that's probably the most important component, the mind game of wealth building, because there's lots and lots of books on how to get wealthy, but it's the, it's, you know, unless you have a why big enough to do it, you don't do it. So I'm going to talk about the, the mind game here. It's going to be a lot about that as we start, at least. I'd like to define somebody who's got financial mastery. So you might want to, now you have a book in front of you and every other page is blank. So you can use that for just general notes and you can write notes across from the principles. And I'm going to use this book as a general outline, but I'm not going to follow it exactly. I'm going to to jump around a little bit. I'll, I'll cover most of the things in this book, but this is for you. This is just as an outline for you, as a reminder to you. I'd like to define financial mastery as somebody who has mastered their wealth enough to no longer be its slave. In other words, you have saved your money and or invested your money to such a degree that your money is working for you instead of you are working for your money. I was offered somehow that when I bought the book, I got put on the list of owners of the book and a financial institution in New York found out and about six months later contacted us and asked if they could buy the book. They offered us $27,000 and I said, absolutely not. It's worth way more than that. To give you an idea of the value of the book. Now what it was is the wealthiest people on the planet, again, the Rothschilds, the morgans and people like this, are the ones that ended up in the hands. Because Hubert Hal Bancroft, when he published this book to a limited edition, sent it to the wealthiest people as a gift. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because inside that textbook is a psychological transformation on the way you perceive wealth. And I think this is a cornerstone to start us out. Because unconsciously, or maybe consciously, majority of people on the planet have some sort of interior unconscious motive to sabotage their wealth building. And the book, in a sense, by the time you finish this book, you have reframed that. Let me just uh, describe that and we can just build from this. He says there are two driving, motivating forces for the human race two main driving forces of the human race, motivators. He said the first one is spiritual and the second is material. He said that the driving force for human beings is their spiritual quest to some degree of immortality and their second driving force is their material quest for financial freedom. Just like in the ancient Egyptians it said that spirit without matter is expressionless and matter without spirit is motionless, the two intertwine to make a driving force that is both immortal and freeing. So what this book is describing is the significance of having a spiritual cause and also a material cause. Because these are the two driving forces. Everybody here wants to be liberated in their, their spirit, but they also wants to be liberated in their freedom financially, to be able to have the options and freedom that money can buy. So I'm going to extract from a bits and pieces from this text and pass, in a sense, some of the torch of what the greatest people who have ever had wealth in their lives, the greatest institutions, some of the things that they've done in this course. I think you'll find that very valuable. It'll be very simple and basic things, so it won't be overwhelming, but there are certain things that that stand the test of time and prove themselves. This program is not going to be a get-rich-quick scheme. In fact, in most cases, those actually get you poor-quick. How many of you have been caught by a few quick-get-rich systems before? So I'm not going to do that, because I found that that's not really the, the answer in the long run. So I'm gonna give you something very methodical, very strategic, very simple to follow that if you do it, it's gonna help you build wealth. But it's a, it's a character builder. It's a disciplination process as much as it is a strategy. Let's look at what wealth is. Wealth means well-being. That's what an original term it meant, well-being. So financial mastery is a person who has freed and liberated their lives and they have attained a state of well-being, a degree of self-actualization, the ability to do what they love and love what they do. That's also part of financial freedom. Their vacation and vocation are, in a sense, synonymous. I'd like to also kind of define money for a moment. Money is... Simply a means of exchange. That's it. A means of exchange. A medium of exchange. It has no moral value. It's not either good or bad, right or wrong, positive or negative. It's simply a means of exchange of one person's value for another. Something that's of value for you for something that's of value for somebody else. It's a means of exchange. I just finished a book, and somewhere I think in the back is uh, it's called How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven. That title came to me when I was in New York a number of years ago, and I finally got around to writing this book. But I was sitting in New York one time with my wife, Athena, and I think most of you know about know who my wife is, Athena. And she um, and I were sitting in New York, and we were having dinner with Robin Leach. And I'm assuming you've heard of Robin Leach, no? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You've seen this, this uh, program he's done? We're sitting in Elaine's and having this dinner with Robin, and he was, we were discussing religion and philosophy and wealth, the the relationships. And he was saying that he had, in his second show of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, he was doing a program called Treasures of the Vatican. And what they did is he got permission at the Vatican in Rome to go into the underground chambers and chapels and the areas where they had stored all the art and all the goods and all the wealth that they had and they got to film this location. And this is what he said. He said, John, if the amount of wealth that's sitting in these football field chambers, size chambers, and all the chapels, which are hundreds and hundreds of chapels, if all of the statues and all the gold and all the diamonds and all the jewels and all the artwork and all the paintings were released and somehow able to be kept at that value but distributed across the world, every human being would be a multimillionaire. He says the vastness of wealth is incomprehensible. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because sometimes in the back of our mind, because of some sort of religious instruction, we've been told that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm going to debunk that. It is more blessed to have fair exchange than anything. I want you to—that's one of the laws—is fair exchange. And I'll elaborate on that as we go along. Fair exchange, doing a service that's valuable to them for a reward that is valuable to you of equal exchange, fair exchange. Tertullian in the second century described, in the early later centuries, in a book called The Papacy, described the marketing ploys that the Catholic Church did in order to acquire wealth and power. And one of them was to keep them ignorant and impoverished so we had control. So we have to be aware that in case you have a religious strand in your psyche that might be holding you back thinking that somehow wealth is not well-being or wealth is somehow not honorable just to let you know that that is absolutely erroneous and is actually the contradiction of what is true absolute contradiction of what is true hubert hal bancroft describes beautifully that a culture that does not develop fair exchange and understand how to manage its money is a culture that stagnates and never develops its arts, science and religions and philosophies and makes a contribution. It stagnates and has a high decay rate. But the culture that learns the art and mastery of wealth building and fair exchange management of economics between the members of the society and between other societies is a culture that contributes and expands and prospers. And so too, as the culture, so is the individual. The individual that masters the laws that govern fair exchange and, and govern wealth building are the ones who contribute to the planet. And they make shifts in the paradigms and the belief systems of the planet. So you actually are going to do more by shining than shrinking. You're going to do more by expanding your wealth than, in a sense, contracting it. You're going to do more by showing other people what's possible... Because that's a natural inclination to expand and prosper. You're going to do more for people by showing what's possible, by living that, than by buying into somebody who is going to do that at your expense. So let's start now. That's just an introduction. That's a prelude to the the program. I'll give you some background here. But now I'd like to start going through principles. There's a lot of principles we're going to discuss. You're going to take notes. You're welcome to ask questions. I may have to repeat your questions for the taping purposes. But are you ready to go? How many are ready to go? All right, great. If you are in a relationship, think this through now. If you're in a relationship and you don't appreciate the person you're with, does the relationship tend to grow and expand and prosper, or does it tend to decay and die? Grow and expand. Put your hand up if you believe that. If you don't appreciate it. It tends to decay, doesn't it? The very word appreciation, just like in real estate, something that appreciates grows in value. So our first principle here is we must appreciate money and its medium of exchange and appreciate wealth in order for it to grow in our lives. If we have in our mind affirmations or negations that say, well, I'm not in it for the money. Oh, money's not important to me. Oh, that's not really what counts. Then every time you are in a conversation with yourself or others about those kinds of distorted illusions, you are in a sense contradicting the natural inclination to want to expand and be. So you want to start appreciating wealth. Appreciate what its opportunities, because a well, what money does when it's managed in fair exchange and managed wisely, more money is given to you because it's kind of a law of growth. And that appreciation of money is what allows it to grow. You must appreciate it. You must allow it to come into your life and appreciate the opportunity to use it and serve with it and be able to have fair exchange with it. So the first law is to appreciate money. The more you appreciate it, the more it appreciates in your life the more it grows in, your va- in value. Must appreciate it. Now, let me elaborate on that. I'm assuming you can see this in the back. I'm hoping you can see this. Everybody has a hierarchy of values. the highest value, and the lowest value. Everybody here has what is most important. To them. Now, values originate from perceptions of what's missing. If we perceive we have no money, we seek money. we perceive we have no relationship, we seek relationships. If we perceive we have no sex, we look for sex. If we perceive we have no children, we look for children. Whatever we perceive is missing becomes most important. So the voids drive the values. That's why the word fulfillment means filling full the mind, which is perceiving something empty. That's why satiation or the satisfaction means to fill something. So each person has a hierarchy of values. In that hierarchy of values, if your highest value is your children, your children's education, your, your, your children's uh, clothes, your home, your vacation, um, your travel, your parents' and let's say down number 10 is saving and building wealth saving and building wealth the second you receive your monthly income let's say it's 10,000 or 100,000 or 5,000 or 2,000 whatever that amount is you will spend your money in exact proportion to the hierarchy of those values now if your savings and wealth building is at the bottom You will have a fantastic child's education. You'll have a nice house. You'll have nice clothes for them. Uh, You'll have a beautiful home, but you won't have any savings left over. This is extremely important. The hierarchy of your values dictates how you spend your money. It determines the priorities in which you spend your money. If wealth building is not near the top you will have more month at the end of your money than money at the end of your month. More month at the end of your money than money at the end of your month. In other words, you'll be out of cash. Now, here's here's a little principle around appreciating money. It's not how much you make that counts. It's the hierarchy of values which dictates how you manage it that counts. Let me elaborate on that. I had the opportunity a few years ago to consult for a gentleman in Florida who did $6,290,000 6, of income that year. Now, how many would agree that they, if they had that much income, they'd probably think they'd be able to save something? At the end of the year, he had to borrow from a lending institution, $327,000 to pay his taxes. Now you're probably thinking, well, that guy's an idiot. No. The guy has up here, on the hierarchy of his values, paying taxes last, saving last, next to last, and living with fancy cars, traveling great life, fancy homes, lots of paintings and everything else, and so he had no savings as an interest, and no uh, paying taxes, he devalued paying taxes and devalued paying himself. So he was borrowing money at the end of the year, and he was in debt at the end of the year. It just so happened that he had assistant, a secretary working for him, that was being paid twenty something thousand dollars a month. I mean, twenty thousand dollars a year, about twenty four thousand, about two thousand a month, who was saving four hundred dollars a month towards her savings. And she was actually going towards financial independence before he was at the rate he was going. In other words, she had saving money and security for the future higher on her value list than he did. So it makes no difference how much money you make. It has everything to do with the hierarchy of your values and the way you manage it that counts as far as financial freedom is concerned. And maybe you're grasping this principle. No matter how much you make, the hierarchy of your values, because what people tend to do is they tend to raise their lifestyle the second they make more money, and then they're right on the edge again. They get a better credit card that gives them a bigger margin, and they just take it up to the edge again. How many of you have been there and done that and know sort of what I'm talking about? In fact, statistically, the majority of people actually will go all the way till 10% behind, instead of saving 10%, they'll actually be in a negative debt level of 10% on an annual basis, paying off credit cards at high interest rates and charge cards. So the hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. That's what I want you to write. The hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. The hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. The hierarchy of your values determine what you appreciate or depreciate. A person that it's the highest value is their children, then obviously they have a high appreciation for their children and a depreciation or a low appreciation for their saving of money. In other words, they'd rather have that money spent on their children than their children spent on their money, if that makes any sense. Now here's a shocker here's a shocker. In my experience, if wealth building and saving money is not in the top five in your value system, in all probability, you're not going to be a vastly fortunate, wealthy, financially free individual. Because you'll always have something come up that you have to spend the money on that'll keep sabotaging. Now, I'm not making that right or wrong. That's not good or bad. That's not like, oh my God, that's That's, uh, you're a bad person because you didn't save your money. It's nothing about that. It's not a moral issue. It's just that most of you, if you spent the money to come here this weekend, you didn't come here to learn how to lose your money or diminish your money. You came here to grow it. You came here for that reason. So you don't want to deny that it's obviously important to you, but you want to come to the realization of where and truly how important really is it. Because you can walk away from here and if it is still low on your value list, you will walk away with the same thing. In other words, unless there's been a transformation in the values, there's not a transformation in your life. It has to go up in value. And I've got a, an exercise to raise it up in your value that we're going to do as a team. It works if you do it. Now, now watch this now. If I'm walking in a mall with my uh, wife, or let's just say, uh, not me, but let's say... Uh, An average person here in Australia, a husband and wife, they're walking in the mall. They're at uh, one of the malls here. And let's say the hierarchy of their values are this. The wife's highest value is similar to this. The children, the children's education, the children's home, the children's clothes, etc. The husband, who's the reciprocal complementary opposite, that's why they marry. You understand the purpose of marriage, right? Purpose of marriage is to find out what you disown and devalue and marry it so you can learn how to value it just a joke but let's say his highest values is building wealth and saving money and building his business etc they're walking hand in hand in a mall and as she's walking down the mall she is seeing things children's clothes children's education materials uh, anything to do with the children he's not noticing that is he he's noticing forbes magazine money magazine worth magazine computers a nice new suit anything that might help his business grow Because the hierarchy of each of their values determines how and what they filter out of their environment. This is very important. In other words, a person who has money at the very top of these values can walk through a mall and see money opportunities. God, I could sell that, I could sell that, I could be doing this, I could do, here's all money opportunities. The person who has children at the top will see, oh, this is a, oh, that's a great opportunity. I'm going to do something for the children and everything else. In other words, the hierarchy of their values dictate what opportunities they see in their environment. They filter out of their environment according to the hierarchy of their values opportunity. So the person that has wealth at the top or near the top will see opportunities that the average person has at the bottom will never see. They'll hear, see, taste, smell, feel opportunities that a person that doesn't have there at the top can't even begin to see. So the hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. It determines how you sense the world and filter the world and how you act upon the world and it helps and determines how you spend your money according to the priorities because if it's high in your values for children, you're going to spend it on the children. If it's high in your values to save, you're going to save it. So that is extremely crucial because with a shift in values comes a a shift in financial destiny. Because if I was to ask you, how much have you saved, if I was to total up every dollar you've earned from the time you were conceived on this planet, and how much do you have as a net worth today, which is a net of how much you saved, that really has a lot to tell you where it is on your value list. I believe, according to what I've read recently, the average Australian saves about 4%, net, that's their net of what they've earned. It was higher in the 70s here, it's dropped. You've got more of a consumer society, more maybe an influence from America or whoever around the world, but you're more consumer today, want to meet a gratification today. At one point you were saving a higher percentage, it's gone down. Let me give you an interesting statistic about the America, because America, some people have this idea that it was a relatively prosperous society, but let me give you some facts about it. And this is around 2000, so it's a few years old, but it's pretty well close to this. In around 2000, they found out that in America, 93% of the American population at retirement had to depend on Social Security to survive. And 69% of those people had to rely on their children to help them. That's supposedly the wealthier country. Because the average American saved 3%. Now, the average income for them led them to end up with a house today at about 160 to $170,000 home, and a net return to them from all their investments, pensions, and, and Social Security of approximately 15 to $1,700 a month. Now the house, they can't sell because then they've got to go to another place, and that's costly, so they have to live in their house, and they're having to survive on about $1,700 a month, which isn't really a high-quality lifestyle. So it has nothing to do with how much money you make. It has everything to do with how you manage it, and the way you manage it is based on the hierarchy of your values, and the hierarchy of values dictates your financial destiny. There was a lovely lady in the United States, and pardon me for using some stories of the United States that just happens to be where I've spent some of my time. There was a lady there who was a black lady. You may have heard of her, but she's a black lady who, an Afro-American lady that that never made more than $2.50 per hour in any job she held. She's about 89 or 90 years old today. I think she's still alive. She never made more than two fifty an hour while she worked. She retired many years ago. She saved 17% of her $2.50 and contributed $10 million about three years ago to a charitable organization from herself because what she did is she saved every single day. Whatever she made, she saved it, she saved it, she saved it, she saved it, she saved it. She saved it. And that accumulated and that started compounding and it started growing and then she caught some of the stock markets that went up in the, in the 50s and then again in the 70s and again in the 90s and she ended up becoming extremely wealthy woman enough to be able to donate $10 million. She never made more than $2.50. So it has nothing to do with how much you make has everything to do, in fact, if you make less, your idea of financial independence is in the same ratio as if you make more. It takes about the same amount of time to be financially independent if you're only making five bucks an hour as if you're making 50 bucks an hour or 500 bucks an hour. The same time because the same science is applying. Now, how many here would love to raise their lifestyle? They would love to raise their lifestyle and live an elaborate lifestyle. I'm going to give you a formula before the program's out on what I recommend to do to raise your lifestyle. If you follow the formula, it won't be stressful to raise your lifestyle. If you don't, you increase the probability of adding stress, financial stress. Because most people raise their lifestyle and don't raise their saving and end up in debt and then they're not appreciating your lifestyle. So our first principle was appreciating money. And appreciating money means putting it higher on your value list. If it's not high on your value list, it's not going to come to you. Whatever you appreciate comes to you. If you appreciate your husband or wife, you have a long-lasting relationship that compounds its interest. If you don't appreciate the relationship, it decays and you have to start all over, just like the savings. If you don't appreciate finances, it starts and stops and starts and stops and you lose time and time is money. Time is compounding and interest. The first principle is appreciate the value of money. And by the way, if, you, if the universe was to give you a million dollars right now, let's just say you received a million dollars. If you didn't know what to do with it, what's likely to occur with it? What happens to people that win the lotto that don't know how to manage their money? Water seeks its own level and it tends to dissipate, doesn't it? I like this little formula. This is an idea here. You can kind of get this one. If you don't know what you're going to do with the money you say you desire why would the universe give it to you? If you don't know what you're going to do with it, think of it this way. If you are in a company and you're wanting a promotion and you don't know anything about that position that you're wanting to promote to, why would the universe give you that promotion if you don't even know what to do with it? If you don't know how to manage money wisely, why would the universe give you more money to manage? When you manage money wisely, more money comes to you. When you manage money poorly, more money is taken away. To those who have, more is given. To those who haven't, more is taken away. It's an ancient proverb. So those people that value it receive more of it. See opportunities. Those that devalue it, it's more taken away because it keeps being spent on things that are higher in value that depreciate in value instead of things that appreciate in value. People that appreciate money tend to put their money where it appreciates in value. I want you to write that. People appreciate money tend to put their money where it appreciates in value. And people that don't appreciate money tend to spend it on things that depreciate in value. Because it's a reflection of their perception of money. How many are following along with me so far? Am I speaking too slow? Too fast. Is it warm in here? Cold in here. Okay. Some of the things that I'm going to say uh, over this weekend are going to be painful, and some are going to be pleasurable. Raise your hand if you're willing to have some pain this weekend. How many of you are interested in having some pleasure, too? I'll give you a balance. If I have zero money and all of a sudden I get a dollar, I do do a service and I receive a dollar for it. The value of that dollar is 100% of the dollar. If I have zero and I earn a dollar, it's 100% value of a dollar. So I have zero, I add a dollar, I have 100% of the value of the dollar. If I have $10, and I add a dollar, what is the value of the dollar if I have $10? What's its perceived value to me? It's 10% of my wealth, isn't it? If I have $100, and I add a dollar, it's 1% of my wealth. And if I continue, 0.1% of my wealth. And if I continue, if I continue that, can you see that if I have a million dollars in my hand, in my savings or something, the value of a dollar becomes less and less and less and less and less valuable? Can you see that? How many of you, if you knew you had a million dollars, you could actually take a lighter and light a dollar without any emotion? You might use it for sweat. Okay, this is a very important component here. Because you've got a built in resistance factor inside your psyche that every time you earn another dollar, you have a diminishing motivation to earn another dollar. Think about this psychology. Note if I have. 100,000 and now becomes even less valuable, that extra dollar, so my desire to attain one more dollar becomes less and less and less as I accumulate wealth. In other words, if I have zero money and I gain a dollar, that's 100%. If I have $10 and somebody was to offer me $10, pardon me, if I had $10 and somebody was to offer me $100, that'd be motivating. But just another dollar is not motivating to me. After a while, if you have $10 million dollars... A dollar is, it's not, if somebody said, hey, look, I'll give you another dollar if you work here, you go, ah, it's not worth it. So you have a tendency to have inertia. So building wealth automatically increases inertia for building wealth. Unless, and here's the key, unless you have a cause and an ever greater motive for earning the extra dollar. So what happens is, as you earn money, your motivation goes down to earn more money unless your cause to earn more money goes up to balance it. I see people plateau. The second their cause is limited, and the second they've accumulated a certain amount of money, if their cause isn't bigger than that, they just stagnate. And no matter what they do, they don't seem to get any more money into their life. Because their motivation to earn an extra dollar is now overridden by the devaluation of the motivation to do it. And so what happens is they stop going out and working as hard or trying to save money as much because it's no longer valuable to them. And they plateau. Everybody here has some plateau point and that plateau point is directly proportionate to how big your vision, your calling, your cause, your purpose for building wealth is. So here's the principle. Here's kind of a principle number two here. That unless you're growing a cause for building wealth, unless that cause is growing faster and more furious than the devaluation of the dollar from all the money you saved, you will plateau. And you'll stagnate, and you'll, you'll, just, you'll just sit at a certain point. Anybody been stuck at a certain point? No matter what they do, they can't seem to get past that? Put your hand up if you've ever had that moment. What that means is your motivation and your drive to build wealth is plateaued because you've got enough to keep you comfortable. You've got enough to take care of your bills and all the things that are on your value list, as long as you're accomplishing those things on your value list, you don't have any more reason to go get more money because you're getting everything on your value list. So in order to build wealth, you must have a cause and the cause must continue to grow greater than the depreciation of the dollar value in your life. So first you gotta appreciate wealth and money and savings. Now you have to appreciate it and you can't stagnate that appreciation. That has to cause, that cause has to grow. If I told you that, let's say you have three children. You have three children? Four children. If all of a sudden I was to take your wife and your children and take them, like they do in Argentina, right? They've taken some of the celebrities' families and ransomed them. And I stole them and said, you will never see your wife nor children again unless you earn one million dollars. In the next month. Now, you probably think, he may go and say, well, they're not worth it. <laughs> but if they were, if he had a big enough drive, a big enough why to do it, guess what he would do? He'd get creative, and he would do things he would never normally do, and get out of his comfort zone, because unless you have a cause bigger than yourself, you won't get beyond yourself. Unless you have a cause bigger than yourself, you won't get beyond yourself. So if you don't have a cause bigger than yourself to go and earn that money for, the second it's at a comfort zone, you'll sit and stagnate. You'll take time off, you won't work as hard, because all your values are being filled. So if you're not putting yourself on the edge, where comfort and uncomfort live, and a greater cause, something to do it for, you'll plateau in your wealth. Now if all of a sudden I said he would never, he knew that I was serious, that he would never see his children or his family again unless he earned that his probability of earning that, would you agree, would go up if they were were valuable to him. Because if they were valuable and they were worth at least a million dollars to them, he would go and figure out how to get that million dollars to buy it. Just like if I told you right now, let's say you don't feel like you have an extra million, but I told you there's a property available here in Brisbane that's a $12 million property that's available today for one million cash. You could turn around tomorrow and get 12 million for it on the market, but you gotta have a million cash today. How many would probably work their ass off and figure out how to do it today? 12 million cash, you could walk away with tomorrow. How many of you would probably find a way of getting a million dollars today? Okay, so it's never a lack of, there's never a lack of money out there. There's a lack of motivation out there. And when a person has a motivation, a big enough why, the house take care of themselves on how to acquire it, And the same thing with wealth, unless you have a cause bigger than yourself, you won't get beyond yourself and you will automatically, by the diminishing of the value of the dollar, devalue your drive to get money unless you have causes that are continuing to grow. That's why some of you, when you bought a house that you didn't know you could afford and you forced yourself into that, somehow your income went up because you had a cause now because you didn't want to lose that house. You didn't want to end up throwing away that money. So the first principle is to appreciate money. The second principle is to have a cause that continuously expands faster than the depreciation value of the dollar as you accumulate the money. Can you understand the logic behind it? Like I say, part of this program is gonna be on the psychology of wealth building as much as it is on the strategies of wealth building, because that's a big part of it. Now, if I asked everybody here, where do they think wealth is on their value list? I bet most of us here are unrealistic and would probably say higher than it actually is. Because your life demonstrates where it really is. What, your life truly demonstrates what truly is a value to you. You can't lie about it. You can't fake it. Your life speaks too loud. So if you have a negative net worth, then it's probably not been high on your value list. Because what's been higher on your value list is whatever that money that you've been borrowing and putting that money into is more valuable to you at this moment in your life. That's all it means. And that's not bad or good again. It's just that if you're willing to grow wealth, you want to figure out how to have whatever you're doing appreciated in value. When I was in chiropractic college, I'm a professional chiropractor. I'm also a retired chiropractor now, but I practiced years ago. While everybody else was getting themselves in debt and having $150,000 loan, loans by the time they graduated, I asked myself... I would, like to get, I would like to study and I would like to learn, how do I get paid to learn? So the average person will say, how do I afford to go on vacation? My thinking is, how do I get paid to go on vacation? A person who has wealth higher on the value will ask, how do I get paid to do something And the person down at the bottom will say, how can I afford to do something? The quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. The quality of the questions are determined by the hierarchy of your values. The hierarchy of values determine how you filter the world and how you you perceive the world and ask questions about the world and act upon the world. So when I went to chiropractic college, instead of having all the debt, I learned that if I teach what I'm studying, I learn it faster. And so what I did is I started teaching the classes I was taking and teaching them for the next semester and teaching my way through school so I would get paid to go to school. In other words, I was getting paid to go to college. Was making between 150 and sometimes $350 a night going to college so I didn't have any debt. I was getting paid to go. So if it's higher on your value, you figure out how to receive and appreciate in value. Whatever you're doing is gonna go up in value. If not, it's gonna go down in value. So the question that I ask you now is what could be a cause in your life that could take you, just like this gentleman to go get his family for a million dollars, what is the cause that you want to dedicate to? Because the greater your cause, the greater your wealth. The greater your cause, the greater your wealth. I want you to write that. The greater your cause, the greater your wealth. Let me put it in a slightly different angle, because I'm going to keep pounding this idea across here for a minute. If I come up to you and said, look, I need to borrow some money. I got, I'm behind on my bills, and um, my kids are getting ready to go to college, and I didn't plan enough for it. And anyway, I just want to know if I could borrow some money from you to help pay for my, uh, the college fund for the kids. Well, your first response is like, well, you know, I've got kids too, so no, no thank you. I'm not interested in paying for you because you didn't manage your money wisely. Would you agree? How many would immediately say, no, I've got, you'd have excuses why you wouldn't want to do it. But if I came to you and I said, two months ago, one of the children in our community who lived in our suburbs was walking across a busy intersection over to the playground on the other side. And as the child walked across the street, it was run over, killed. And I don't know about you, but I have two or three children there in that age group and we've counted, and there's 190 children in that age group right in this suburb alone. And we realized that if they walk across that busy street and not look, they could die too. So what I've decided to do is there's one vacant lot in our suburb that has not been bought out yet. And it's on this side of the highway. And what I've done is I've put every dollar I have in my savings into this fund to buy this out and build a park so the kids don't have to go across the street so we can have swings and we can have playground on this side of the street just to make sure our kids don't get killed. We have no idea if you'd like to join us and help on this, but we've seed funded it. Whether it be a dollar or ten or a hundred or whatever you'd like, we would appreciate anything you can for the sake of our children. I don't know how many would probably pull into their pockets and probably grab something and contribute. Why? Because there's a cause bigger than me. The bigger the cause, the more you and others will contribute to building wealth for it. So, this is a deep contemplative thought. What is your cause? What are you going to contribute your monies to building? Is it going to be simply for your retirement? That's a small cause. Is it just for comfort? That's a small cause. Is it going to be to build a new institution? I had a lady in Houston, Texas, who was a financial broker, very successful financial broker. She was averaging at the time, she was in her 20s, and she was averaging at the time between six and $7,000 take-home net per day. Net from all her work. I started working with her. She started using me as a mentor and a mastermind partner to try to help her build. And she built her wealth up to where it was averaging between fourteen dollars and $17,000 a day take-home as a broker. Then she hit this plateau. She couldn't get anywhere. Just hit this plateau, plateau, plateau for probably a year and a half to two years. Nothing, it just seemed like the same income, the same thing. She said, I'm sitting in a plateau. You got any ideas or suggestions? And I said, yeah, I got a question for you. If you were to die tomorrow and you had 24 hours to live, what's incomplete in your life? And somehow it just choked her up and she got a tear in the eye and she said something about my mother. And I said, what is it about your mother? She says, I feel like she literally dedicated her life for my my cause, for me. And I haven't contributed back to her as much as I'd like. I said, what do you want to do? And she started crying. She said... Her mother worked two jobs just so she could go to college so she could end up having a, a life that's, that's fulfilling financially today. I said, what do you want to do? She says, I feel like all the things that she wanted to do, she never got to do, I'd like to do something back. I said, what is that? She says, one of the things she always loved is fine arts, musicals, plays, the opera, the symphony, performing arts. And she never got a chance to even go and do some of those things. I said, what would you love to do? She started crying, she says, I'd like to build a performing arts center in Houston, Texas, for her. just came out of her heart. The lady had a lot of wealthy clients. She'd already accumulated a few million dollars as it was. She went down to the performing arts uh, the symphony, I believe it was, and started talking to the people and inspired them to the cause. And we have now in Houston, Texas, Wortham Theater because of that. Now, her income... Her income, once she got a cause, went to $32,000 and $34,000 a day income. She started hanging out with different people. Started, she pushed herself to new levels. Because now she was on a race to try to get this thing built before her mother passed away. She had a cause. When the why is big enough, the house take care of themselves. When the why is big enough, the house take care of themselves. The more intense the why, the more powerful the wealth What's the why? That's what you're asking yourself. That's a contemplation for yourself as a homework assignment tonight. What is your why? What is your reason for building wealth? If you don't have a big enough reason, you're going to get comfortable and plateau. So what's your reason? This lady has a foundation. In addition to that, she now has a foundation for children to inspire and educate children. Children's foundation called the Bunny Love foundation. And she dresses up as a little bunny, and she travels the world, and she inspires young children to live their lives to the fullest and tries to help people live their dreams. Now, since she's added that on top of it, because she's already finished the theater, now she's gone on to another level, and she's pushed herself, and she's a very fortunate lady, and she's contributed to many other fortunes. If you help other people get where they want to get in life, you get where you want to get in life. Basic law. But what is the cost? If it's just to get comfortable, then that's exactly the second you get comfortable, you'll plateau. Are you with me on this? Let me thinking about their cause for a moment. I share one other story because this is important. These are are crucial components of wealth building. I worked with a doctor, happened to be a chiropractor in Sudbury, Ontario. He was sitting there in his practice for eight years, about the same income, the same income, the same income, every year the same number of patients, same income. He was just sitting there plateaued. He happened to come to my Breakthrough Experience program, got a new idea, got inspired about some things. He said, I want to grow, and I want to go in my wealth somewhere. He got alive again. He was kind of dying, and he was getting alive. He was comfortable. He had enough to retire, and he was comfortable. And I asked him the same question I asked that lovely lady. I said, if you had only 24 hours to live, what would you do? And something came to him. And this doesn't come to everybody, but this is what came to this gentleman. He said he had also something to do with his mother. Because, see, in his situation, he became a healer, and he felt he had special hands as a healer. And his mother is the one who he felt contributed them to these hands. She had a special gift, a special love, a special uh, trust in the universe and the healing process. And so what he decided to do is he decided to set up a scholarship at Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College... And he was going to donate a certain amount of money into that college and so until it reached a certain level. So then, on an annual basis, that, that a portion of the interest earned off that money would be able to go towards scholarships for the students. To be able to go out for the people who are the, the best in the clinic and the best in education, etc. He could do a scholarship. So he donated four visits a day, four chiropractic adjustments a day. What his practice did, if you start adding that up, his practice went up a few thousand dollars a month almost immediately because now he had a cause. He put that cause, he typed up what the basic essence of that cause is above the doors when he walked into his adjusting room and had a picture of his mother, and this one's for you. These are for you, Mom. And it just so happened, it took him four years to accumulate the amount of money that he felt was enough to start the actual scholarships. But he had his mother there at the Canadian Memorial graduation ceremony on behalf and set up this scholarship for her. And he said as a result of that, he was alive. He drove himself. He pushed himself. His practice went up. His income went up. He was averaging about $8,000 more a month in his own income, even though he was now contributing to her income, to the cause that she had. So my point is this. The greater the cause, the greater the wealth. The greater the motivation. It's not that you don't have the ability to have opportunities for wealth building. They're all around you. It's just you must have the opportunity driven by a motivation factor. If the motivation factor is not growing faster than decline, you'll stagnate. That's my point here. I'm saying it over and over again. So I'd like you to, on these pages, this few lines that follow, I'd like you to write a few of the reasons why you're planning on being wealthy. Some cause, some purpose behind it. Maybe it's enough funds for your great-grandchildren to go to college. Maybe it's for some um, a purchasing of a great piece of property. Maybe it's a park. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's for you to retire and tr- do a worldwide travel around the world on a, on a yacht or something. But you write down what it is that's in- inspiring you. What's the cause? And just know the greater your cause, the greater your motivation, the higher the probability of wealth coming in your life. I'm going to give you a second to write that. How many of you feel like you're uncovering something that you hadn't maybe awakened to before? or maybe you're discovering something that might drive you a little further? Anybody? Good When I was a teenager I believe you've got it now when I was a teenager, I read my first book in my life. I didn't read until I was 17. I was told as a child that I would never read, write or communicate. I had learning disabilities. So when I finally was able to read, with the help of a great teacher, and guided me, obviously learning became important to me. Because when you had a void, it drives a value. If the teacher tells me I would never read, write or communicate, never amount to much, nor go very far in life, which is exact words she said, then you can probably understand probably why I've read 20,000 texts and travel now as far as I do and do as much as communicating as possible. That's the gift. So voids drive values sometimes. But as a result of that, education and inspiration is very high on my value list. I'm not right or wrong for it, it's just who I am. But it inspires me to get up and do that. I love doing that. So you have to find out what you love to do. What's in something inspiring to you? What's your cause? To find that, there's, there's two levels of function. You might want to write this. One's called motivation and one's called inspiration. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm an inspirational speaker. There's two different types. And let me elaborate on what that, the difference is. Everyone has a hierarchy of values. When they are true to their values, they know thyself. Be thyself, love thyself, as the Delphic Oracle said. When they're true to themselves and they're living according to their values, they are inspired. They're inspired whatever is most important to them. Nobody has to get them up and discipline them to go and do what's most important to them. See, whatever your life is really important to you, whatever's really high in your value list, nobody has to get you up to do Now, they may be watching TV and watching the symptoms. That's highest on your value list, and you'll be there disciplined every single night watching the symptoms. But whatever it is, nobody has to motivate you to do it, what's truly most important. But when you're trying to get yourself to do things that are lower on your value list, the lower it is on your value list, the more you will require outside motivation to get you to do it. Now, if you have a hierarchy of values, and you meet somebody else that has a different hierarchy of values, and you put them on a pedestal and perceive them as authority, you will inject their value systems into your own, have an internal conflict, a moral dilemma, trying to live your own value systems and theirs, and you will require outside motivation to live theirs, but you will have inside inspiration to live yours. And the conflict between them will create a chaos. Are you with me on this? So... Knowing yourself is the most stabilizing thing you can do according to their values. Once you've shifted your values to build wealth, knowing yourself and sticking to it and not infatuating with others or resenting others keeps you most steady and focused, which we'll talk more about as we go along here. So this is not a motivational seminar. It's an inspirational seminar because it's designed to have you discover what's really truly inspiring to you and go in and figure out how to get rewarded economically for doing it. I'm absolutely convinced that a person can do that. They can find whatever they're most inspired by it and receive tremendous income from doing that. I'm, I'm convinced of that. There's somebody out there that's built wealth, almost anything, anything you can imagine, they can, somebody can build wealth at it. Once they have a cause and a motivation to do it, they get creative in figuring it out, how to do it. Now, We have, I'm going to call it the heart and mind, the heart and brain here of our nature. How many of you know that you build yourself up and actually think you're greater than you are at times? Build yourself up and get cocky and self-righteous. Raise your hand if you've been pretty cool and self-righteous before. And how many of you have been very self-raunchous and beat yourself down pretty good? Knocked yourself down. And if you get self-righteous and you're married, the purpose of the spouse is to bring you back into equilibrium, aren't they? And if you get self-raunchous and you go below the equilibrium, their job is to let you know you're not that bad of an asshole after all. And they lift you up. So the purpose of marriage is to equilibrate, to make Balance. If you get way above the equilibration, think you're better than they, or better than the, something, better than you are, they bring you down. If you get below it, they lift you up. Can you relate to that? That's the purpose of marriage. It's not happiness. never was happiness. It's about the purpose of being in balance to your life. So you can learn how to own both sides of yourself. Now, the second you are cocky and self-righteous, you feel you've already done a bunch of things, and damn it, you deserve it. And so you're into receiving and having things. The second you beat yourself up, that's if you're self-righteous. If you're self-righteous, you're knocking yourself down and you feel like, oh my God, I don't feel like I deserve, so you're into doing things. So whenever you beat yourself up about something, you're into altruistic and you minimize yourself relative to others. People who minimize themselves relative to others tend to work for others and the money tends to go to others. People that put themselves in self-righteousness do the opposite, and feel narcissistically that others owe them something. Both of those systems create the haves and the have-nots in society. But fair exchange is the balance point. Well, you're not trying to get something for nothing in a self-righteous mode. You're not trying to give something for nothing in a self righteous mode. But you're trying to give something for something in a fair exchange as a true self-worth. So you have a pseudo-elevated self-esteem, a pseudo-depressed self-esteem, and a true self-worth when you're at fair exchange and you have completion. Whenever you try to get something for nothing or try to give something for nothing, you get out of presence. Let me give you an example here. Have you ever bought something and felt you didn't pay enough for it, and felt that you owed them something? I Maybe mean, you ever felt like it just wasn't a fair exchange and you actually had the guilt of getting it for such a deal, and the fear that you obligated, you, you owed them something. And so fear is a future imagined emotion, and guilt is a past remembered emotion, and it's taking you out of being clear, consciously present. At The same time, if all of a sudden somebody owes you money, you have the fear of them paying it, and the guilt for them, you're putting yourself in this situation, and that takes you into the fear of the future and past remembered guilt, and takes you out of the present. So anytime you go out of fair exchange, you get out of the presence. And whenever you get out of the presence, you exaggerate or minimize your self-worth. And whenever you exaggerate or minimize your self-worth, you tend to set unreasonable objectives on yourself. Ones that if you're in self-righteous, burn, that burn you out. You try to set objectives too quick and too short a period of time and you get manic and elated with yourself and you think, I can do anything. i have been there before. You go to a seminar, you get all hyped up, you think I can do anything, and then you come crashing down, and then you beat yourself up, and you think I can't do anything, and you oscillate around who you really are instead of keeping in fair exchange with who you are. Fair exchange keeps you poised instead of poisoned, and keeps you present instead of future fear and past remembered guilt. Keeps you present. These are emotions, this is presence. Warren Buffett said that until you can manage your emotions, don't don't expect to ever manage money. Until you can manage emotions, don't expect to manage money. Emotions cost you money. Strategies build you money. Emotions cost you money. Strategies build you money. Because emotions make you think you can do something quicker than you can or bigger than you can. And the other one makes you think, I can't do it. And both of them keep you from being present in fair exchange with people. In all probability, you have a list in your mind of things you think you screwed up on. Raise your hand if you can look back in your life. You think, oh, I screwed up here. I should have done it this way. I should have done it that way. I'd like you to do a little exercise here. On the blank page behind, on page uh, nine on the back where it's blank here, opposite nine, I'd like you to write down five things you think, oh, I screwed up here in my life. Five things you think, oh, I messed up. Five things you might be feeling guilty about, beating yourself up about it. I'm sure that you have at least one, am I correct? Take the one that you think is probably the one you feel the most um, hurt or guilt over. Put a star by it. The thing you think, oh, I really screwed up on this one. And I'm going to say this, there are no screw-ups, there's no mistakes, but there may be perceptions that you may be holding about yourself that you might think they are. So here's what I want you to do, on that one that you put a star by, I want you to write down two columns underneath it. The one is, how did it serve you by doing that, and how did it serve others by doing that? And quickly run at least five benefits to you and five benefits to others for that one thing, and dissolve the guilt about it find out how it served you and how it served other people. Write five. Quick, as fast as you can. How many of you notice that as you write down how it serves them and how it serves you, the perceptions of guilt subside and you feel like, oh, well, that actually is not so bad after all. Okay, here's a little exercise that I encourage you to do for yourself. Is to make a list of all the things that you think you screwed up on. They're not, except in your own perception, really screw-ups. But write down how it served you and how it served others until you can go, hey, I'm glad that I I did that. I learned something from that, and now I move on. Because otherwise, you're carrying baggage around. And as long as you're carrying baggage that's beating yourself up, your feelings of worth and you're willing to receive what it is that you intend are interfered with. It's unconscious, but that unconscious motive to not feel worthy and to want to give. Because whenever you self-depreciate, you tend to go into altruistic sides And when you're on the other side, you tend to go into narcissistic side. If you bring them into balance, you have fair exchange and you're willing to receive what you ask for. You're willing to receive it. So go through there and eliminate those things that you think you have screwed up on and find out how it served you and others and raise your self-worth. Because the greater your self-worth, the greater the potential for your net worth. By the way, just as a little uh, side venture here, has anybody here ever received an inheritance from somebody? Okay, here's a little exercise. If you ever get an inheritance or receive a sum of money that you weren't expecting, you want to write these two things down, or otherwise, that money will get dissipated very quickly. You write down what did I do to deserve this? Here's the reason. If you do not feel you deserve that, you will find in a very short period of time how fast that money disappears from your life. You'll give it to a broker that will blow it. You'll buy something that will depreciate. You'll end up with a health issue. You'll end up with an accident. Something will happen to dissipate and bring you back down to where your self-worth level is. So if you receive an inheritance, you write down what you did to deserve this. Why am I having this money into me? The second you can see that you've deserved it You will manage it differently, because now it's valuable that you feel you worked for it. If you give a child at Christmas time, um, if you just say, let's go shopping, it's Christmas time, they're just going to buy low-priority items, and they're just going to do it, and they're going to keep wanting to buy items, keep wanting to buy items around you. But if you say, okay, here's your money, now you decide what you want to do, that's your value system, They'll go dollar cost average on everything. They'll go around and measure this and see how much it is and think of how much money is left over. And they'll, they'll buy things according to priority. They won't just buy junk. How many of you noticed it? They'll buy it according to their priority. If you explain to them why they deserve that and what they did to earn the money and how they really have earned that money, they'll manage it even different and they'll probably save some of it. But it's amazing how quick things will break down or dissipate or they won't have a value on it if you just give them money. So if you inherit money or win the lotto or anything like that, before you do anything with it, write down why you deserved it. What did you do in the past that deserved it? Because if you don't feel you deserved it, invariably you will have that money taken away from you. It'll just be dissipated in some weird way. Fights over the family will dissipate it, injuries, sicknesses poor investment choices, sharks that will grab your money because unconsciously you don't feel you deserve it and you don't want the tension and the guilt of owing. So whenever you feel you don't, you, you received money and didn't feel like you valued it or didn't feel like you earned it, you write that down and don't stop until you get a tear in the eye and you know exactly why you received that money then. Intuitively, you'll know. When you do, you'll manage it differently because a person who works for their money manages money differently than a person who just inherits this money and doesn't feel they earned it. they'll they'll manage it differently now I'd like to shock you for a moment I'd like you to this will be a wake up call I'd like you to put your gross income per annual income here your gross annual income at the top of the page there you can do it on the left or right left side of your page actually I'm using the right but you can use the left side either way Gross annual income. How much you make in a year before taxes. Underneath that, that is the real income. Just put it real. Our gross annual income. Underneath that, write down the ideal gross annual income. What would you prefer it to be? And be somewhat reasonable. What would you prefer it to be? Let's say your gross annual income, I'm just gonna pick a number here, is 50. But you'd love to make 100. I'm just making up numbers, because it could be twice as much, 10 times as much, or it be half as much, it doesn't matter. And so you, you do it, as you add those two together, the real and the ideal, and let's just say this is 50 and this is 100. So now you have 150. And then what happens is, you now divide by two. And you come up with 75,000 or whatever numbers you've got in there. So let's say your, your average income is 200,000, and you'd love to make 250 or 300,000. You put 200,000 plus 300,000, and so your net is 250,000. Let's say it's 50,000 is what you're making, and you'd like to make it 100, then it'd be 75. Let's say it's 25, you'd like to make 50. Then obviously it's gonna be 33 or whatever it is in a third. You with me? Right underneath that, put your age. Whatever the age is. So you may be as young as 18, like we have in the front here, and some of you may be 30s, 40s, or 50s, maybe even older. You put the age. Now, whatever that age is, let's just say it's 40 here. I want you to add 15 years to it. So plus 15 years, and that would make it 55, or whatever the age would be if you added 15 years to it. And now take that number, this case 75,000, and double it. So that's 150000 Notice In 15 years, double that number. So if, it's, if your, your ideal plus real added together, divided by two, your age is 40, now at 55, that amount would be now doubled. Then add 15 years, and that'd be 70, and now make that 300000 Added 15 years there. Now let's add another 15 years, that'd be 85, and that's 600,000. And then add another, which is 100 years, 15 more years, and that's 1.2 mil. What I'm doing is I'm taking the average inflation, which is about 45 to 5%, Dividing it into a law of 72, which is just a mathematics I haven't explained, that means that the cost of living is going to double approximately every 14 to 15 years.